1: Um, we're doing our Skype thing. I'm here with Emily. We're still talking about the Bible and that's what we do. And I think that's what you've come to expect. So, um, (laughs) how are you doing? (laughs)
0: Worn out. It's been crazy, but you know, that's, that's life. I'm kind of deciding that that's just our normal. And so, right.
1: Right. (laughs) Well,
0: yeah, I don't have any great insights, you know, it's just running around with family is pretty much what we do these days right here.
1: So. I understand. Well, I guess um, we should get on with the Bible stuff, but uh, we're kind of, kind of in a time crunch this week. We're having to like just squeeze an episode in here, uh, but we'll get it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I had to boot the husband out so I could have a, a few moments without him, you know, puttering around in the kitchen or what have you, so. Yeah. Uh yeah pray pray that I get a house soon oh, yeah. <laughs> so I keep keep bringing that up but it's like it would just make life so much easier to have a room with a door right. it, you you don't realize what a luxury a door is until you live without one for a
1: while yeah, that, makes, so. that, that makes sense well uh we have uh 48 minutes and 40 seconds right now ish to uh <laughs> to talk about the Bible so let's do that.
0: Uh, okay so uh we are um still in psalms uh 31 uh, 51 sorry psalms 51 uh we left off with verse 12 uh david had said restore to me the joy of your salvation uphold me with a willing spirit we we talked about um what that meant you know that this is uh, a time where david is realigning himself with god's purposes and He's gone through this this language of repentance, of ownership. He's accepted what he's done. He, he's been very brutal, uh, even calling down that judgment on his sin and recognizing that the sin does not define him if he's in alignment with God. Now we're into verse 13. And you'd ask about this last week, and we didn't get to it because we ran out of time. It says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So, um, David's saying that you know basically being forgiven and being restored to the relationship has some real world implications. He's moving it out of the realm of this hyper spiritual abstraction uh and we've got to remember, as we said before, salvation is a military term. God fights and wins liberation for the sinner, and the one who's liberated is now supposed to join in that fight with God uh we talked about uh Rabbi Jonah's. Uh, or Rabbi Jonah's uh, "Gates of Repentance," the book that um, outlines those twenty principles, and this is the final principle of repentance. This is the the organic growth, uh, outgrowth of repentance and restoration. Is that you would then teach others. Now, in the Gates of Repentance, Rabbi Jonah cites uh, not only this verse here in Psalms, but he also cites Leviticus nineteen seventeen, and it says, "You shall not hate your brother in your heart." But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Now, that's the ESV. I want to read it, uh, What Robert Alter, how he translated. He said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely reprove your fellow and not bear guilt because of him. So Alter is definitely seeing the connection between loving and reproving as the means to communicate um, that you aren't supposed to feel smug and superior towards your brother. But you're supposed to recognize that sin is wrong. Uh, love is the primary command within this verse, but then this underlying uh, principle of reproving uh, becomes an element of that love. So Leviticus takes it further, and it, it, he remind the writer of Leviticus, which you know we, might be Moses. and We're going to talk about why that might be important. Uh, remaining silent not correcting sin actually results in responsibility for that sin. Uh, The ESV had to incur sin because of him, alters his bare guilt because of him. So this idea that your brother's sin actually does impact you. And you can kind of see how Leviticus and why Leviticus isn't all that popular today. And so, uh, you know, there's this, the seemingly direct contradiction to the the much quoted uh, Matthew seven one, where Jesus says, "Judge not," and you know, we kind of we get so much theology from memes and little Facebook bites, and you know, not not full context. And so, I think it's appropriate that we actually kind of look at this, how these two passages play off each other, because. Matthew 7, 1 does say judge not, but that's just the first part of the verse. It says, lest you be judged. Rarely do we make it into verse 2. It says we will be judged by the same measure by which we judge. And Psalms 51, David's really showing how this equation works both ways. Grace and mercy that's been extended to him can now be extended to others. So so while judgment can be extended on the basis of how you judge, grace and mercy can can also be extended by how you've been loved and how you've experienced grace and mercy. And he can show the world, David can, that there's hope for redemption and and restoration for those who truly repent. But while we're talking about it, we're going to go ahead and continue with Matthew 7 just a little bit because I can never resist going into this passage because it is so abused. Now, verses 3 and 4, I think we all kind of know the, you know, uh, the log and the, the speck or the, the moat, um, you know, illustration yeah, that's presented yeah. there. Don't
1: Don't try to take the speck out of someone else's eye until you've gotten the plank out of your own eye.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And that's it. We stop at verse five. We don't, we hardly ever get into verse five, which reads, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. Now, we stop there because verse five becomes a command that you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, the plank out of your own eye. That's telling us we have a personal responsibility. It requires something of us. We are supposed to be actively removing those planks, those logs, however we wanna um, phrase it, from our own eye. And if we don't do this, now we're in sin, we're in error. And the reason for this is so that we can remove that speck. It's not saying don't try to take the speck out of your brother's eyes, which I think is how most people interpret this, on at least on the internet. It's saying you should. You should be doing everything in your power to get yourself to a place where you can actually help someone else. What an amazing concept. The idea that our faith would equip us to help someone else.
1: Well, and, well yeah, and, and another unpopular uh, <laughs> another unpopular uh, saying is you know Jordan Peterson his, his book 12 rules for life has been ripped up and down and what's really funny about and I know this is way off topic but it's it's also not one of the one of the rules in his book is to to set your house in order before you go trying to to change the world and he gets a lot of flack for that but it it makes a lot of sense it's like you you know if you don't know how to manage your own affairs how are you going to manage the affairs of others and that's essentially kind of what this is talking about um but yeah it's, it's just very interesting to me that that it's very interesting he takes so much flack for uh his 12 rules when it's kind of interesting a lot of them are basically kind of if you rephrase them just a little bit and put them on a meme they're being shared by everyone all over the internet but you know, right. So. <laughs> He's he just yeah, got a little more yeah. pointed uh, look to it, but anyway.
0: <laughs> well, you know, we aren't supposed to be pointed, That that's the problem with today's society. We, we, we are supposed to kind of be covert and almost manipulative in how we deliver a message, but that's a whole other topic. Now, what, what I'm seeing when I put Matthew 7 with, with Psalms 51 is you, you get the, the plank out of your eyes so you can help someone else. Or as David phrases it, to teach transgressors God's ways and so that they might return to him. Now we remove, like I said, we we remove the plank so that we can actually do what we're called to do. You know, and the purpose of repentance isn't so that we can sit back and kind of luxuriate in this private knowledge that we're right with God. Uh, repentance brings us back to relationship with God, and that relationship should inspire us to share with others. And this is why James can say faith without works is dead or faith without works or faith is completed with works. And matter of fact, he even says uh, in his book that anyone who thinks that you can have faith and not have it manifest in works is foolish. And, you know, it does begin with a highly intimate and individualized process. David's demonstrated it. The first 12 verses of the psalm, he's talked about his ownership, his deeds, his, you know, the impact it's had on him and his relationship with God. And now he he is making that organic step where the next step is to take it out of that highly personalized environment and and to share it with everyone else. And we, we're shown the same pattern throughout scripture. Uh Psalms 1072 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And if you read through that Psalm, we're presented with this um, passage, uh, uh, this picture of rebellion, repentance, restoration, rejoicing, and a retelling, and a retelling of what that rebellion was and how you were restored from that through the process of repentance. We see it in the prophets. You know, they, they're always, if you cannot read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel and not see this, them calling out rebellion, saying, hey, you guys are in sin, you need to knock it off, you need to repent, and then what do they do? They promise. They say, "Hey, if you get this right, you can be restored," and it all starts with repentance. And then they call the people to rejoice over God's goodness, His grace, His love, His ability to bring them back into the Promised Land, back into the place where His presence resides. And how do how does the prophets uh, how do the prophets uh, prove this in their argumentation? Well, they retell the story of the nation. They point back to that Exodus experience. They point back to crossing the Red Sea and the plagues and the fact that God has delivered them so many times in the past. We see the same pattern in the Gospels. Paul, Peter, James, they all write about it and they all begin with repentance as a first step that leads us to lives that demonstrate the joy over the restoration. And we're supposed to be a sign of hope for those around us. Uh, This retelling and rejoicing can be, distilled down further into another, you know, great Christian term, which is testimony, which we talked about before, Revelation 12, 11, how's the enemy overcome? The blood of the lamb and the testimony of the saints. And the testimony is incomplete without the retelling of the initial rebellion, which it is why we need to be restored and we have this within psalms 51 it's just all brought into this very concise chapter that's that's an interesting thing
1: you know the saying that the testimony is incomplete without the initial retelling of the rebellion and think of how much of the old Mm -hmm. testament we leave out uh, when we talk about christ's work on the cross especially when we're looking at now i know it's not super popular among the evangelicals but (laughs) you know, if we're, if we're looking at, like, the divine council worldview, and we leave out Genesis 6 from the story, um, because mm-hmm. when you think about it, that makes God's work on the, the cross so much greater. It it mm-hmm. It's about what he's rescuing humanity from, not just our own ineptness, which is basically what it sounds like from <laughs> a, you know, from a very modern standpoint. We're looking at He's redeeming the world. He's not just—it's not just us. It takes a lot of the focus off of just mm-hmm. humanity. It kind of makes us less yes. important in the whole grand scheme of things, but also somehow more loved. And it's—it's it's a really weird uh, paradigm shift whenever you start looking at—you know—he didn't—he didn't just come. To, he didn't just sacrifice himself because we're a bunch of screw ups. It, there was a lot right. more going on in the world, and I mean. I mean seriously, I mean how how bad does that message sound? You're such a screw up that that Jesus had to die. Wait, what?
0: Right. <laughs> but that's that's what we've reduced the gospel to. Well it is, and this is why people reject it all the time. And you know, I'm in a lot of Facebook groups that that um deal with people who've left the evangelical faith. And you know, over and over again I've seen that meme, you know, that uh God God had to kill himself to save himself from himself. I mean, you know, it, and, and it's like you're missing part of the story, a major part of the story. Is humanity sinful and corrupt? Absolutely. We, we, we all are. However, the problem is bigger than just us. And so there, there is room for us to say, hey, I, I can actually move back towards God and I can be a part of his plan because it's not just that I messed up the entire world or Adam messed up the entire world or Eve, you know, whoever you want to blame it on. There was more factors in play than what we want to give credit for. And, you know, and to me, that's a really weird elevation of humanity to have so much power. And so, yes, we were given authority over the earth, but then we surrendered it. And when you realize that we surrendered it to, you know, Satan being the prince of the earth, now we realize, oh, this makes sense. The world is so messed up, and so you know, it, it it there's doors that are open for for thinking and considering and and to really recognize God's love within this this grand scheme for humanity. Because I do think there's a lot of times that we focus so much on you know the total depravity of man, you know the absolute corruption of humanity, that it really kind of becomes hopeless that why, why should God love me? And especially whenever we have a lot of legalistic ideas about what sin is. And a lot of times, you know, I believe sin is very real and I'm not going to discount the power of sin to corrupt. But a lot of times what people consider sinful isn't really a sin. And it's amazing how when we start taking back those, you know, our definitions to a biblical standard rather than a cultural standard, how often things we've deemed sin, God doesn't care about. And when you think about how specific God is on certain things, you know, if he doesn't specifically say something as a sin in his word, I don't think that he cares, you know, <laughs> because he's got too many other examples of when he does get very specific about small things like send the mother bird away, you know, things that we would not even consider consequential. Um, now that we've chased that rabbit down, I totally did not plan on going there. Well, no, I
1: just, I, it was just one of those things. It seemed to to kind of fit there that that we really do. I mean, we we sell the gospel very very short when we when we make it about the, you know, God God made humanity and said, "Thanks, I hate it." You know, that's basically <laughs> said to himself, "Thanks, I hate it." I guess, but you know, that's basically yeah. the idea that that man will. We must not have been that great to begin with because we, we screwed stuff up, the, you know, the day after Eve got here,
0: mm-hmm. you know. Or within minutes, according to who's telling yeah, the story. Yeah, and,
1: and <laughs> right. but we, we look and it's like, okay, well, if you, if you tie all this stuff together, it's not just us, but we're a component in a cosmic battle. I mean, not one that we're going mm-hmm. to lose I don't want to try to get into dualism, you know. I mean the the right. it's already won. God's declared the end from the beginning. You know it's mm-hmm. so we don't have to worry about that. But it does. It takes the it takes a lot of the uh, it 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 lets us be less narcissistic as a as a race. If you really look at
0: it. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. And you know this is where David's saying that he doesn't have to be bound up in so much shame that he can't return to God's presence. And uh, actually, in the paddle store, Stephanie asked a question. I didn't get a chance to to answer it yet. Uh, I'll probably return to it uh, later this afternoon. But, um, you know, she asked a really good question about shame within the reality of this world. And there's this idea that's often promoted within evangelical circles that you should be so ashamed of who you are and what you are that you don't even talk about it, that you don't you never share what your story is, and that's so messed up. Because if you look at this psalm, if you look at this, what you know is traditionally the the pattern for repentance. What does a, a repentance look like? Repentance looks like being very bold and very open about what you did, the not in the way of, oh, look at me, I'm such a bad guy, you know, I mean, it, not that kind of idea, but the idea that we share what we did and how horrible it was, because then it turns around and offers a chance to to glorify what God has done on our behalf. And, you know, when we start looking at shame, I, I'm still putting thoughts together, so so bear with me. I I have like an overarching picture but trying to pull up pieces to describe. There shame is a component both within conviction and condemnation. And so often we get so locked into this idea that shame is bad because so many people have only experienced it as condemnation. And when you're talking about condemnation, I mean that's hopelessness. That is utter desperation and fear and you know it's only looking at what you deserve and it does become narcissistic in that really odd way of look at me being so proud of how humble I should be how undeserving I should be and so we can get locked into that that contemplation of who we are and what we've done to the point that we forget to lift our eyes up and celebrate the fact that we have a god who cares enough to reach for us in the midst of all of that and to to bring us into his family and, and to say, I love you. I want you to be with me. I want you to participate. One of the ways we participate is by telling our story. And that telling of the story is what teaches the transgressors. This is how we warn our brother. This is how we, we teach people to have hope. Because if we stop telling our stories and all of us who are Christians are just nothing but a bunch of kids who were born in church and were raised in the tradition and we've never had anything go wrong we've never done anything wrong where's the glory in that i mean yes there is a certain amount of glory in the idea that god can protect a a human life so that they're never you know in contact with the great evils of the world great that's fabulous the truth is most of us are going to be contaminated by evil either evil we choose or evil that's brought into our lives by someone else right and we need to be looking at how god can rescue from that that's the message the world needs to have so we have to stop focusing on ourselves so that shame paralyzes and start looking at what god has done so that we can be motivated not because shame has left us feeling condemned but because it's convicted us we need jesus Mm -hmm. and that that's i think the point and that's the reason why the world has to push shame away and say we can't have anything to do with shame Because when it brings us back to Jesus, well, now the world has lost. And so we as Christians need to re-embrace shame, not as someplace we live, but as that gate that we pass through that brings us back into that right relationship with God. And when we tell our story and we tell it boldly, it's not glorying in our sinful acts. It's glorying in God's grace and mercy. And that's what David is doing here in the Psalms. I'm going to to lift God up. I'm going to praise him because despite what I've done, he's still bigger. so um anyway, <laughs> now that I've gone off on another rabbit trail, this is, there's so much good just practical application in the psalm that it's hard not to to just take off on these. but another aspect of this teaching is when we as human beings, one of our most basic instincts is when we love something and when we really care about something, we teach others about it. I'm not talking about some kind of formal, you know, we got to have a class and I'm going to tell you how to knit a sweater or, you know, or whatever. It, It is that very much a, just a natural outgrowth of I love this so much. I need you to know about it. If you're going to know me as a person, you need to know how important this is and what a huge element of my identity this is. And so, you know, you kind of have to wonder, and I think this is what James is saying, if you're a believer and you don't have that excitement about God being a part of your life and you don't have that appreciation that moves you to, to works, that moves you to giving your testimony, how real is your relationship? I mean. I'm not, And I'm not trying to throw stones at anyone because within our culture, we have been taught that religion and our relationship with God is supposed to be so personal and so private. And we don't talk about religion and politics in public. And the Bible says the exact opposite. You do talk about it. And you talk about it not as a way, again, to glorify any evil you may have been involved in, but there's a God who's bigger than any um, evil you may have been involved in. And so the rabbis actually teach, a few of them anyway, usually with rabbis, it's like a few teach this view and a few teach that view. So you kind of got to remember that. But one of the things they teach is that um, David was only allowed to sin so greatly so that he could teach so thoroughly, which I thought was a very interesting idea that David would be... um, that this idea that David would, would be allowed to sin or even led into sin so that he would have credibility. Now, I don't think we need to, to sin in order to gain credibility. Well, you know, it also don't... kind of
1: seems contrary to Paul. Uh, when Paul says, should should we sin more so that we can have more grace? So I, I don't know that I fully buy that view. Um, but there, Here, there's where... there's also the redemption aspect of it where, you know, god was able to you know uh redeem those situations he wasn't surprised by them he were, mm-hmm. you know he was able to to take the the wrong that david had done and make things better um, so right well it's kind of a what I, I, is it a cause is it a causal thing or is it just a i don't know like what the other or, or well go ahead is it
0: it, it well, and that's the thing. I mean, I think it's James who says, you know, no man should say that, that God tempts, that you, they're not tempted by God. Right. Um, that we, we don't say that. So, again, so I don't believe that, that God caused or led David into sin. But what I do find interesting about that is there is this certain amount of credibility that comes with having had the experience. And, that, and that's not just sins that you have committed yourself, that's also sins that are committed against you. Um, personal example. When I talk to women who are in abusive relationships, I can speak with some level of credibility. Why? Because I've been there. And Now, did God cause that? I don't believe that. Um, He he allowed it to happen for whatever reason, uh, probably because my husband has free will, or ex-husband had free will. Let's be very clear about that. He is an ex. Um, But he had free will that he abused. Now, despite the fact that a human being decided to abuse his free will, God was still able to redeem that, and I think part of that redemption is the fact that I have shared my story. I've talked to people about it. I'm very open about that. It's not a source of shame for me anymore, although it was in the beginning that I would be, you know, allow myself to to fall prey to somebody like that. So I, I see how God does take these, these evils experienced, whether uh, by our own volition or through someone else's decision, and he brings them back in a way that he says. I can still be glorified through him. I can still reveal how great my love is through them because he's that big. And so we, we need to be celebrating that. And that's, you know, one of the ways I try to enact these principles in my uh, own life. So, okay. Verse 14 and 15. uh, We're going to see the shift that David is making continue. Um, He says, deliver me from blood guiltness, guiltiness, O God, O God, my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So the ESV has the blood guiltiness. Uh, Alter sticks a little closer to the Hebrew. He says, save me from bloodshed. Uh, The Hebrew doesn't have the word guilt in there at all uh although it it is implied so the ESV translators did you know include this this word to kind of smooth out the translation because anyone who sheds the blood of man is guilty before god we find that um with the noahic covenant but the, the implication is made um more specific about it being guilt whenever you realize that deliver actually means to strip away and to just you know just to rip it off and no matter who wrote this book of the Bible, because, you know, not everybody says that David did it, um, it is addressing the sin of bloodshed. Now, if it's David, this is basically a confession. Hey, I, I killed Uriah. If it is um, someone else, the, the basic message still holds. So Alter, uh, instead of God of my salvation, he he's, translates this God of my, uh, God of my rescue. And it has more of a a closer meaning to deliver or salvation. God delivers from guilt, even bloodshed. Bloodshed. So all guilt can be removed by God. Uh, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So this is the proper response. We were just talking about this. The proper response for guilt being stripped away is to sing it out loud, so that the world can hear your testimony. Now we're back in Revelation. You can see how this theme displays throughout the Bible. Out loud is a ringing cry. Uh, This is the same word that's used in Job to describe the song of the angels at creation. Uh, That's Job 29.13. It's the response Israel has whenever they pass over the Red Sea and God appears um, to them in the desert, Leviticus 9.24. I like the rabbinic reading of this verse. And it, they claim that the proper response of a sinner when confronted by God is to be struck si- silent. You know, the, the awe is so great you can't even talk. And so they're saying that David's asking that God would actually open his mouth and enable him to sing his praise because somebody who's struck silent in awe needs God to actually move them that, from that place to where they can vocalize what's going on. So verse 16 for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So some have seen this verse as a, reput- a repudiation of um, the sacrificial system. Uh, however, if you go back and read Leviticus, uh, particularly uh, 6, 2 through 7, uh we see that God requires that anyone who does wrong to someone else, they, they do fraud, they rob, they swear falsely, they, they must first make restitution to their neighbor. Anyone who's harmed a fellow human being has to set that right. And so even the sacrificial system says you have to address the, the wrongs we've done to each other before you can even become, uh, you know, come and offer a, a sacrifice to God. If you want that sacrifice to be recognized, you first have to set your house in order like you were talking about earlier. Uh, Blind cultic observances are not enough to restore relationship. And the um, material restitution that is prescribed in Leviticus can only be made to another human being, not God. So we definitely have every evidence that first we set things right with our brother, then we come to God. And so David is saying, hey, I I need to get my house in order. I need to make restitution to those who I've harmed here before I can come to you with the right sacrifice. So um, the idea here is that um, that when we sin against another human being, we are sinning against God. And we talked about that in a previous passage, uh, previous um, episode where we talked about, oh, uh, verse four, against you alone I have sinned. So there's another element too that I think is kind of implicitly laid out in Leviticus uh, about the sacrificial system. And I think there's, certain assumptions that the writer of Leviticus makes about the sacrificial system that don't need to be spelled out until later. And, you know, we've got to remember when Leviticus was written. Leviticus was written, if we believe that Moses is the author, it's either part of that Sinai revelation or it was revealed somewhere along the way in those 40 years and given to the people at that point. Uh, However, by the time we get to David, Leviticus is, is... hundreds if not thousands of years old. And familiarity breeds contempt. That That's just the way it goes. And so by the time we get to David, we're looking at a sacrificial system that's seen as a ritual. It's seen as kind of a talisman. Uh, you know, it, it's a way to buy God off. It, it's not about that intimate relationship. And we've already seen this with uh, Finchas and Hophni at the beginning of 1 Samuel, whenever they take the Ark of the Covenant out into the battle against the Philistines. And the you know not one person at that point in time with Finchas and Hophni bothered to call them into account, which is interesting because it's a throwback to those previous verses we just talked about. Uh, even their father wouldn't correct them. Um, it wasn't until Hannah calls out um, the fact that hey, the system's broken. We need to fix the system. And the system isn't what protects us because it's not what brings us into right relationship with God. So the proud and the arrogant and the mighty, those who control the system, they were going to be brought low. And this is what sets off that whole chain of events that brings us to the Davidic monarchy. And now, when when I was making the point about Leviticus, this is a people who had just been through all of the plagues of Egypt, they had crossed the Red Sea, they've been witness to God on Sinai, the mountain alive with thunder and lightning, Moses descending, glowing with the words of God himself, God's Shekinah manifest glory, taking up residence over the wings of the cherubim on the ark. This pillar of um, fire by night and a cloud by day leading them through the desert. This is a people who understood because it was necessary to their salvation. And it's amazing how quickly, not salvation, but survival. It's amazing how quickly people understand things. They need to survive (laughs) above and beyond anything else. And that's the thing. They knew if they were going to survive in the desert, they had to be close to God. They had to be in right alignment with God. When they weren't, death hit the camps. So the writer Leviticus doesn't have to explain that survival and salvation are required uh, are required that one walk in this right relationship with God. When we get into the period of the judges, the people are settled. They're now, they aren't relying on manna anymore. They don't have to rely on the quail. Nobody's having to break rocks open so that they can have water. They they can sustain themselves. They start to lose that understanding, and they begin to have what I would think uh, mirrors our perceptions of religion a little bit more closely in that this is what you do not because you really expect a real relationship, not because you really expect God to show up, but this is what you do. This is the right thing. This is your fire insurance. This is how you pay God off. Now, David is saying, we're not paying God off. Paying God off doesn't mean anything if we aren't living correctly before we go to him in repentance or when, and when we make these overt you know, gestures and symbols of repentance within the cultic sacrificial system, He's saying we've got to get our heart right, Our hearts right first. Now, um, we know that abuse of the sacrificial system is an ongoing issue with Israel. I mean, once they're settled in the land, we have that shift where the, that total dependence and that intimate awareness of God is gone. And so they, they become very nonchalant in, in how they approach God. And God doesn't like it. He, he's not a fan. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Notice that knowledge of God, yada, that experiential, intimate knowledge. Isaiah one eleven, What to me is the multi- uh, multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. And then he continues with a list of, of these cultic exer- observances that God uh, is tired of because they're not given with the right attitude, and that right attitude is almost universally demonstrated first by how we treat other people. Uh, Isaiah one eighteen, come now, let us reason together. I mean, now we're thinking back to that Leviticus verse we read earlier. You know, speak frankly with your brother, reason with your brother. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Jeremiah seven twenty-one through 23. Again, God clarifies the sacrificial system is not giving things to God. It's about obedience and because God desires that we walk with him. And how do you walk with God? It's by being obedient. It's by honoring him. And this isn't God making some kind of crazy oh, if you're not doing this well enough, you can't be a part of my life. That's not how relationships work. However, one of the components of a relationship is the idea that if you care about me, you pay attention to the things that are important to me. We demand this of our spouses, our children, our friends. If you don't care about the things that are important to me, then do you really care about me? And, you know, in marriages, we realize how small and how petty sometimes we can be. You know, my, my husband has this tendency to uh, lay trash on the counter next to the, the trash can. I don't understand this. This makes no sense to me. It's like the trash can's right there. Just put it in the trash. And there are times that I feel deeply unloved as a person because he can't be bothered to do this. And, you know, and we expect God to just overlook major things about who he is and so if if we can be upset and offended as a human being that you know the trash is in the trash can the the dirty clothes aren't necessarily put in the basket or you know whatever then why do we think that God should just overlook what's wrong with us or what we are doing that doesn't take into account his feelings and concerns about the relationship so anyway Verse 10, 4 through 9, this is this talk, again, uh, the writer of Hebrews, I'm not going to read this passage, he talks about the importance of this right relationship with God and how it's not through the sacrificial system because we're sanctified, we're all sanctified through Christ, but the problem is that we don't realize that Taking care of each other is that demonstration of caring for God. Why? Because we're all created in the image of God. So, David is making explicit what was implicit in Leviticus that you join in relationship with God by doing the proper observances, not just towards God, but to your fellow man. And then you can make those sacrifices that allow you to inhabit that holy space and be close to the presence of God. And so, um, I've actually like talked through like three pages of my notes. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, it's, it's good the, stuff. Um, well, I, when you start to bring in these these background pieces, it, it begins to give more depth, and it, I think it becomes more applicable. And one of the things I really like about uh, what is revealed in a very Jewish mindset is how do we move this into something that's actionable. And so David is saying, hey, guys, we, we need to view God as real. We need to view God as having feelings. And, you know, if you've ever had, you know, you guys out there, if you've ever had uh, an argument with your wife and you bring her flowers because the argument, you know, the, uh, this is how we, we settle arguments today, right? You, you bring her flowers uh, and she's supposed to forget that you did anything wrong, but then you turn around the next day and do the same thing. And you bring her flowers again and she forgives you and things are better. And then you turn around and do the same thing. And eventually the flowers don't mean anything. We can understand this. I, I don't understand why people think that there's a different set of rules for how we treat and love and honor God than there is for just the most important people in our lives. And, you know, and the thing is, in Leviticus, the people never have the chance to get complacent with God. They can be doubtful, they can be fearful, they can even be angry with God, but they never get the chance to be complacent. And, you know, sometimes I think people who are angry with God, that he's actually more real to them than those of us who are complacent, and that those who are actually working through any feelings of, um, you know, anger, frustration, with what God has either, you know, allowed to happen in their life, or the things that they've brought on themselves that they want to blame God for. I you know I was there at, at one point and I think those are legitimate feelings we need to to work through. And and God was very real even in the midst of those struggles. But David is saying, hey, we can't be complacent anymore. We we can't act as if God doesn't care about these things because he does. So verse 17. The sacrifices the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a broken contrite heart. God will not be uh, sorry. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. The The rabbis read this as, God accepts the sacrifices offered with a broken and contrite heart. Look how easy it is. I mean, it's just like right there on the page. But he rejects sacrifices made in arrogance. And I think that's what so often what we find the, those prophets addressing is, hey, you think that you somehow bought God off? You think that because you gave him a sacrifice, that he owes you something. And, and that's the difference, the, the idea of bringing a sacrifice because it's an outpouring of I want to be with God versus of he owes me because I did the right thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and
1: that's, well, you know, it. it... You know, I was going to say this because we do have, and I've seen this happen in, in you know, CCM, contemporary Christian music and, and praise and worship music, this verse about a contrite heart and bro- or broken heart and contrite spirit—it's—I feel like that gets overplayed in the way they do a lot of their songwriting, and uh, it, and it's
0: very—I
1: I know, it. I know. And I'm going to take a moment, <laughs> and this is a complaint that I have. Just always <laughs> seems like we—you know, there's there's a start, you know, there's like this formula that goes on. It's like there's the, you know, the happy clappy you know jump up and down hype song at the beginning but then you know you got to kind of work your way down to the the weepy I'm so terrible song by the time you get to the sermon now I I'm saying I'm not saying there's not a place for brokenness there's not I'm not saying there's not a place for right. mourning there is a there is a time for that but it seems like a lot of the music we play in a lot of churches today is geared towards manufacturing that sense of brokenness so that we can feel like we've expunged all of our badness that we've done throughout the week and <laughs> it's very frustrating to me that it's it's packaged and sold in that way and I you know this is one of my pet peeves it's one of you know I know I'm up on my my soapbox here but I I really I think we need to steer away from that, and we do need to address things when people are hurting. We do need to address mm-hmm. those times of repentance, but to manufacture it every single Sunday, and, mm-hmm. the, it, it, and and that's and you know and, and that's part of the problem. And I'm just going to say this: you know, it's probably not going to win me any friends. <laughs> um, that's part of the problem with the mega church model is you're trying number 1 so much of it is the seeker sensitive thing and they they're trying to turn the the worship times into evangelism so that's... Right. you're kind of hamstringing any real things you could be doing number 2 you have no idea where everyone in the congregation is so you feel like you have to put a little bit of everything out there because you you're it's so impersonal uh that, mm-hmm. and then so, you wind up with these, you know, well, we've got our celebration song, and then we've got our our morning song, and then we've got our love song to Jesus, and then we've got it's, and I get there's a time and a place for each of those, but if you've got mm-hmm. 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 people in the room, not everyone's going to be there. And so, you wind up with the schizophrenic. Service that's trying to cater to any and everybody who might have happened to come through the door. And do people find Jesus in those settings? I absolutely believe it happens. Um, And But I also think that we need to move. And this is just a personal thing. I'm not an expert on this. I think it would serve us better to have. I didn't mean to go here. But. I actually think it would serve us better to have like a loose coalition of churches of a hundred versus, you know, that maybe share a facility and rotate through and share resources versus this big monolithic machine where you can sneak in, you sneak out, nobody notices and nobody knows you. And right. right. And you can just
0: Where you have to form real relationships. Yeah, and you
1: can just disappear <laughs> and it's so you know, and it kind of ties to that thing of of no amount of cultic practice is going to fix the broken relationship that you said earlier. That is just, I mean, that's a great statement. We can say that a hundred times. I think that's, uh, you know, in the show there. But I, I do think that we need to get away from this manufactured brokenness. We need to get away from the the mm-hmm. hype. We We need to get into knowing each other and knowing when it's time to minister to those people as opposed to just, well, we're going to throw this out there. If anybody's having, you know, pain in their left leg, uh, you know, this song's for you, you know, it, I'm, so that might be based right. on some personal experiences I've had. Um, but anyway, we should get back to the text. I'm rambling at this point, I think.
0: Well, okay. So I have to throw this out there. <clears throat> get prepared for the hate mail. Um <laughs> We, we have to manufacture this brokenness because we don't have any real sins. You know, when as in our modern Christian church, we don't talk about, hey, there's sin that damages your relationship with God. It damages you. It damages the earth. It damages the people around you. So until we can actually bring this back to a place where we can say sin is real, sin is something that, that actually causes damage, why in the world should we repent? right right
1: oh, I mean it, or there's uh, the other extreme of it that <laughs> everything we do is wrong and we can't do anything right and back to that we can't do anything but screw up model that also damages the church it damages people's faith so you know it's you know I, I love uh, the verse in Ecclesiastes you know the <laughs> the man of God who avoids all extremes kind of thing. So, you know, we, right. it's addressing things well, rightly, like you said. So, yeah, but uh, I'm going to turn it back to we hum-
0: <laughs> Well, we as Christians, we, we are just humanity in general. And I, I see it within Christians since we are humans. We like to fall into ditches. That, that's right. what we do we very rarely get the balance right and so i think that's one of the the huge struggles of our faith is trying to find where is that balance okay there is a time to repent do we have to be repenting over the fact that you know i i passed somebody wearing yoga pants this week um you know and you may or may not have noticed more than a split second it, th- there's there's that moment where we get real with god and sometimes that real is you know, this is false guilt. This is false shame so that I can feel more holy and pious and mm-hmm, elevated mm-hmm. by the fact that I have done the right thing. And sometimes that being real is, I really screwed up. I really hurt someone else. I hurt your heart, Father, because I was rebellious. Mm-hmm. And so finding those moments and how to, to to address the real issue, because I think so often we get we get distracted by the the idea that oh we're supposed to follow this rule instead of nurturing the relationship and you now the rules help us nurture the relationship but if we're just following the rules without nurturing the relationship we're missing the point and that's what david's is david is saying here. right and so uh we may have like gone from teaching to preaching so we we might okay we'll get back to verse 18 through 19 uh it says, <laughs> do good in Zion, in your presence, build up the walls of Jerusalem, verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, the bulls will be offered to on your altar. So, okay, technical notes here, because we haven't talked a lot about that this episode. This is where we run into some problems with the dating of the psalm, because if you go just Go to Bible Hub and look up this verse, and you'll notice there's like several different translations, and they they what the translations offer us is either uh, you will build the walls or you will rebuild the walls. And so um, we we have some debate on what this should look like or which what word that should be, which what it should be is going to depend on the context. However, the context is usually determined by the dating. and so the dating is called into question by the word. And now you have this great big circle of confusion. Uh, and it's all going to come down to do you believe David wrote the psalm or do you believe that someone wrote it later? Now, there is a possibility that David wrote everything to verse 17, uh, sorry, verse 18, and then an editor added onto this. This is something that's been proposed. Uh, Alter actually proposes this. Um, Seems like the simplest explanation. <laughs> Um, well, I, I actually have a problem with it because I don't normally have a problem with editorial additions to this, to the script that, uh, the, the idea that, um, editors do smooth things out, but this almost feels like somebody came along and went, Ooh, David's saying that the sacrificial system is bad and we can't have that. So now we have to correct it. Um, I, I, I don't like that. And so I'm just going to put that out there. I don't like it. So, you know, whether or not that's a good enough reason to to consider uh, what I'm saying or or not is up to you. But um, I I think that if you do offer it as a continuation of what David had been saying in the previous verses in sixteen and seventeen, what you're having is David presenting that correct balance, that correct tension where God, you aren't going to accept my sacrifices until I've I've gone through this repentance process. But once I do, once I decide to step back into this relationship with you and do what you've asked me to do as a way to honor the relationship, now you're going to you're going to accept what I have um, have to offer. So the um, the situation here is basically: Are we saying that David is asking for God to build Zion, which you know it's a new city? He's the king of a new new kingdom. He um is looking is he looking forward to the temple being built, or is this someone from the uh, Babylonian exile looking back and saying, God, we need to rebuild your temple? You know, honestly, it works either way, and the theological message is not impinged by whether or not um this was written by David or it was written later. the the premise And the principles for repentance are clearly laid out from beginning to end. And if you're Old Testament, pre-Jesus, the sacrificial system was the right way to engage God. Why? Because that's what God had laid out for the people. And I, I don't think we need to be going, oh, well, you know, sacrifices are just something Pharisees offered. No, sacrifices are something you did if you wanted to inhabit holy space. And all of Israel was holy space. The temple in particular was even more holy space. And so if you wanted to be there, you did what God commanded you to do. And, you know, that's a great picture for us. If you want to be near what God is doing, who you know, where God is at, then you you do what it takes to inhabit holy space, which begins with repentance. And even in the sacrificial system, and this is what I think is the important part, even within the sacrificial system, repentance began addressing the wrongs you had done to others how crazy is that it's not a private you know look at me I've got this great relationship with God it had real world implications and that is so counter to what we look at and say in um in in our culture today so um anyway (laughs) I think that um as I go through notes here cuz I I went off on 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 this whole um rant in my notes because I I just I keep seeing this pattern that we have within our own faith and religion that doesn't make a lot of room for engaging the world we're in and that that's not the point of our faith. And this is the reason why Jesus concludes his earthly ministry with the great commission that we're supposed to go out and make disciples. And, you know, what David is doing within the Psalm is he's eradicating the excuses. And, um, that's, that's the, the, the important part is we have to eradicate those excuses, not to do good, not to teach, not to share. And that's part of the repentance process is to acknowledge that I have to be proclaiming the fact that God and rejoicing over the fact that God has restored me. So um, if we go back and we put um, this psalm back in the context of 2 Samuel and we read it side by side, it really drives home a, a very ugly and inescapable truth all of us have the potential to do horrible and awful things. I mean, and I think this is really kind of the point of David and Bathsheba and the whole story because so often uh, one of the questions is I'm seeing thrown around now is how do we, how do we de- grapple and deal with the Psalms written by this man who did this horrible thing? I, I think this is one of the points of the story. All of us are capable of being David. I, you know, it's so easy to look at David's sin and say, I would never do that. I would never rape somebody else. I would never kill somebody else. That's not who I am. And, you know, and great. I'm I'm glad that most of us can say that. But the point is, the potential is within us all. And if we ever think for a second that the potential to do great evil is not within each and every one of us, then then we are failing to come to terms with how as human beings how broken we are and how deeply sin has impacted us and you know david didn't wake up one day and go oh i think i'm going to rape a woman and kill kill some random guy that that's not how this worked and we we saw this with the beginning of the story we go back to mephibosheth we go back to david saying hey I can talk like God can talk. I can make the promises and and give the blessings that God has promised and God has blessed people with. I can inhabit this space. And now I can even begin to extend my compassion further than God even extends his compassion. And this is how great of a king I'm going to be. And this is how great of a, you know, to put it into modern terms, how great of a Christian I'm going to be, that I can do this and I can be so loving and humble and, and even arrogant in the same breath. And this is when, when David David sins. It's whenever he elevates his own opinion that highly. And so when we have this story, we're, we, we're getting, one, a warning. Don't ever think you're smarter than God. Don't ever think you're more righteous or compassionate than God. Uh, you're not. And that kind of righteousness and compassion is always going to lead to sin. Because if you're having compassion on sinful acts and you're just perpetuating those sinful acts, and the the other thing we're getting is this message of hope. So we have the warning and the hope, and the hope is if God can still love and redeem and restore David, most of us we're good as long as we step back into that repentance. But that's the thing: we have to step into repentance, and we have to begin by acknowledging where we've messed up, and so. The story of David and Bathsheba, um, despite, you know, the, the, um, despite the surface level appearance is actually good news. And the good news is that none of us are beyond God's love. None of us are beyond God's power to, to redeem and restore. And some of us really need to hear that and especially those of us who grew up in churches where it was just pounded into your head that you were just a worm before God that you were so evil you were so miserable that nobody could ever love you enough to actually want to save you and that's what so many people are taking away whether they t- are taking that away correctly or incorrectly is beside the point when i when i get on social media and i interact with um with other believers, then that's what I see is this idea that there are some who are beyond God's repentance or God's love and restoration. And that it's just not the case. And I think that's why we need the story of David and Bathsheba and it needs to be studied. Mm -hmm. So,
1: well, and we're definitely doing that. We're definitely, (laughs) definitely studying David and Bathsheba. So
0: the good news is we're we're pretty much done right other than some allusions back to uh this event with we're getting ready to go into another horrible passage sorry guys it's uh tamar and amnon awful awful story so we're gonna have some allusions back but we're kind of putting david and Bathsheba behind us because i'm about tired of because yeah, <laughs> so technically this is
1: part seven i think
0: oh dear lord <laughs> so seven hours seven hours on the topic yeah and you know what and we could have gone even down more rabbit trails so just to let people know we did save you from some of it (laughs) we did kind of shield you but uh, yeah no but that's the thing about the bible you can the depth is there yeah uh, to to take it as far as you want to absolutely and so
1: well anyway cool well I think that seems like a good place to stop I I think I saw you motion to Ty did he come in is that what happened (laughs)
0: He did. Yeah, Yeah, he came in and
1: was like, shh, be quiet. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go so that you can go uh, hang out with him, and he doesn't have to sit there quietly, and I'm going to go hang out with my family a little bit today, and everybody Mm -hmm. hopefully act like we like each other. It'll be good. So, (laughs) anyway, that being said, hey, if you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, uh, hit up RavenCreekSC.com for uh, this show, show notes, and also other shows. Check out uh, commentaries with Joe Zaragoza. Changed my mind with Dean Harrington. What else we got out there? We've got tending, tending our, nets our nets with Joshua Sherman and
0: the answers newest one, yeah, 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 the newest one. Answers
1: to giant questions. I did not type a list since last week, since you know, two weeks ago, or last week or whenever that was. Um, I need to do it. Just have it on my notes. But uh, yeah, answers to giant questions with Tim Stedman and Chris. Bather, is that right? Bathur, Bather? Bather? Uh, I, I don't know. They're I Aussie. Would, they
0: might I'm pronounce terrible, it anyway. They're terrible not...
1: with names, so I'm sorry if I'm <laughs> screwing that up, Chris. Please forgive me. We are thrilled to have you guys. I'm loving the show so far and can't wait to, to listen to more of it. Uh, so I will uh, leave everyone with that, and we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith
0: and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven. Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard,
1: please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on Patreon.com slash RavenCreekSC. As always, thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us next week.